Welcome to the Old Soul, New Soul Astrology Podcast with Robert Glasscock. I'm Thomas Miller. Thank you so much for joining us. We're continuing our string of listener questions, and this is a really good one about squares that are in the same element. Hi, Thomas. I was wondering what you and Robert think about planets that involve squares in the same element. For instance, Mars in 28 degrees of Gemini, square Sun in 1 degree of Libra. Is that an easier square to work with? So, Robert, this is a great question because if you take a whole sign chart, then, for example, you wouldn't you would think that the signs look like more of a sign-based square, but here is a square by degree. So how would you answer that? Well, these are what we call aspects across the line of sign. Normally, a square will be inharmonious signs. For example, Sun in Cancer, square Mars in Libra. And there you have a water sign, planet, square, an air sign, planet. So so when you have a, a square, like you're talking about here, the, the two planets are absolutely in conflict. The energy of one is in conflict with the other. Now, conflict produces ambition on a constructive side. And when you have that square, because they are still 90 or 91 degrees apart from each other, but they're across the line of sign. All right, so what she's talking about are two planets that are technically in square. They're right around 90 degrees apart, but they're in harmonious signs. They're both in air. One's in Gemini, one's at the very end of Gemini, the other one is at the very beginning of Libra. But they're still in square, but the elements are of the same element, which gives a person and indicates in the birth chart that that person will tend to work through that square very constructively and positively. They still may have the frustrations and the challenges and the conflicts that come with the square, but look at the signs involved, Gemini and Libra. Both air signs, both have to do with communications, so that that becomes the saving grace in the square, that she will be able to talk herself into or out of virtually any situation, but that communication and connecting with the right people to help her solve problems in life goes well so that she may even have a natural uh, ability at say acting as an agent or a mediator or a go-between because she's able to take opposing viewpoints and find a point of synthesis and harmony and collaboration with them whereas someone with that same square but in conflicting elements would have more difficulty with it let's say she still had one planet in gemini and the other planet in virgo as compared to early libra then Gemini and Virgo are in conflict, and there the conflict is to scatter the energies too much, to fail to pay attention to details, to become impatient and make mistakes out of impatience, being a little premature or holding back a little too long. So she can begin to pay attention to how those archetypes work. So in, in, in Virgo Gemini, the the danger really is losing sight of the forest for the trees 
So this can become one of those positions that overanalyzes everything and it always can find something wrong and it tends to focus on what's wrong rather than where the points of collaboration, communication and harmony are. So her her uh, square across the line of signs can actually serve her pretty well in life, unlike somebody else's square that was in conflicting signs. So that's one way that you can weigh the different likely effects of one square over another square. I'd like to bring a technical term in here, but let's walk it back so that the person who has never heard this term can understand what we're talking about. I'd like to ask you about what kind of an orb do you prefer for these squares? So basically, let's explain it from the beginning. All right. I use pretty, I use eight degrees for a square. Uh, and sometimes I will use nine. There's another phenomenon in astrology called uh, translation of light. Now, let, so let, me, let me take a step back because I really do want to bring this to elementary school level okay, so that people okay. who have not ever heard about this. So let's say that you have a planet at 10 degrees and let's say Scorpio. And we're talking about a square here. So if we moved up to 10 degrees of Aquarius, so your Scorpio planet is at 10 your Aquarius planet is 10, that's a zero-degree orb. In other words, they are at the same degree. We're not going to worry about the minutes in this example, but just say it's the same orb, zero degrees. So what Robert is saying by eight degrees is you could move either one of those two planets within an eight-degree variance of each other and still call it a square. Did I say that pretty good? Exactly right, Thomas. All right. And and the rel- and relative to this question is because we're talking about, as he said, we're all of a sudden moving out of Aquarius and we might be moving into Pisces for this square. Or you could have an early degree Scorpio planet and have something in Capricorn, for example. So when it mm-hmm. crosses that line, that's that delicate real estate that we're talking about in this question. So then the thing that I wanted to ask you, too, on top of that is what about the degrees? Is the degree of the planet, because you've talked about this being important in the past, in these kinds of aspects, does the degree that that planet is sitting on relative to that across-the-line square factor in? Yes, to the last question about the degrees being important, they are. It's very simple with aspects. All you have to know is that a conjunction is zero degrees. Same sign or zero. They can't. A conjunction can also be across the line of sign when you include orbs. So in major aspects, namely the conjunction, the sextile, the square, the trine, and the opposition, the five Ptolemaic aspects, I allow eight degrees orbs. So I can have a planet at one degree Libra and another one at, uh, say, eight degrees Sagittarius. And they would be in sextile, even though they're eight degrees apart from a true sextile, which is 60 degrees. So you have to know the degrees of what the, the, the angular degrees of each kind of aspect. A sextile is 60 degrees. So a planet can be in orb of a sextile if it's at 52 degrees. 
if they're separated by 52 degrees or as much as by 68 degrees and still count as a sextile. The same with a trine. You have to know what a trine is, which is 120 degrees. But you can allow an orb of 8 degrees on either side of that 120, and those two planets will still be technically an orb of a trine. Square is 90 degrees, so you can have a true square anywhere from 82 degrees to 98 degrees and still be an orb. Now, if if you have two planets in conjunction with each other, let's say three or four degrees, even five or six degrees apart, but they are a conjunction, and another planet forms an aspect to one of those first two planets, then because those first two planets are in conjunction with each other, the first planet that is in aspect with the third planet translates the light of that aspect to the second planet near it in, in a conjunction. So even though the third planet may not technically be an orb of that second planet in the conjunction, because the first planet in the conjunction is conjoined, it, it translates the light of that, that aspect to the second planet in the conjunction. I hope that that's kind of hard to explain verbally. I hope it's a little more clear graphically. But all you need to know are the, are, are the degrees shown in opposition is 180 degrees, for example. And then you just look to see those two planets. Are they within eight degrees of either side of being an exact square or an exact sextile or trine or opposition? And that's the concept of orbs. And orbs are important because they help you assess the strength of an aspect. Now, someone like Reinhold Ebertine and cosmobiology, if you're using midpoints, for example, midpoints, I do only allow a degree and a half orb, maybe two, but that's it. Has to be tight. With I know this makes yeah. a lot more sense if you can kind of draw it out, but hopefully the mental pictures are enough to understand this. So do you use eight degrees then for everything? I tend to use eight degrees, Thomas. Um for example, an inconjunct aspect, which is 150 degrees, uh, most of the old books tell you to use three, maybe five degree orbs. I use eight for an inconjunct. I don't use eight for a, for a semi-square, for example. This is just my preference, only because I have found that with inconjuncts, an eight degree orb is still viable. Can show up. And, and valid, yeah. But again, the key phrase is just knowing that the closer the orb is to being exact, the stronger it is. And then, of course, aspects that fall in angular houses are stronger than those that fall in succeed or cadent houses. So there are all sorts of ways to begin to estimate the strengths of an aspect. But it's this orb that becomes pretty crucial. I don't... Uh, there are some astrologers that will allow 15 degrees for a conjunction. I don't. I mean, I'm aware that the planets are in maybe the same sign, but if they're 15 degrees apart, I'm not likely to count it. Well, and we have to remind people, too, in horary astrology, there are no orbs. If it's in the same sign and it's a square, Scorpio Aquarius, that's a square. Doesn't matter what the degree is. That's true. And horary, one of the rules, and I love horary very much, but it has very specific rules, just a few of them, but they're very specific and necessary. In horary, a planet is allowed to move the full span of the sign that it is in to make aspects. But in horary, no planet is allowed to leave the sign that it is in to make an aspect. So that's the question that we just addressed. Now, 
is there any application, is there any crossover between the horary rules and individual natal interpretation? Yes. <laughs> it's probably too complex to get into in any detail here, but there absolutely are times when you're reading a natal chart that you can make use of horary techniques. So you could look at a sign-based aspect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of course, our friends in the Hellenistic world, Chris Brennan and even Robert Hand and folks that are studying the really ancient stuff would very much advocate a sign-based square as valid. They do. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I had a question come up the other day, and I think I know your answer to this, but let me ask you. It was something I wanted to ask you anyway, and everybody can just listen in. The context of this was the conjunction as either is that considered an easy or a positive aspect or is that considered a hard aspect or a negative aspect? In horary, I know that the conjunction is used as a yes, a favorable answer. So here again, mm -hmm. if we're extruding horary into this, we would say, well, it's a positive. Is there any situation where a conjunction would be considered one of the negatives? In other words, along with the opposition and square, now conjunction would be a negative aspect. Sure. Uh, it depends on how you define negative. For example, if you have the moon conjunct Saturn, let's say, at birth, you may read that as someone who is very guarded about their emotions and their feelings and somebody who is sensitive, actually, again, depending on the sign, but somebody with uh, the moon conjunct Saturn can be extremely sensitive to criticism and hurt feelings and so on, depending on the aspects to that conjunction. They may even be one of these uh, victim-y personalities. They always feel that other people are uh, disrespecting them or disregarding them or putting them down or standing in their way or something. But it's basically a, an aspect of guarded emotionality, guarded self-protecting the feelings. That can be a very positive aspect to have in a life, depending on the kind of life you live and what you do. Uh, for example, in a woman's chart, the sun I mean, Saturn conjunct Pluto can indicate a businesswoman, an ambitious woman. Well, if she's raised in a culture or a town or a city or a country that puts women in second place and doesn't permit them to drive even a cab or leave home without a, a male partner, what is she going to do with her ambitions, you see? So then suddenly that, that aspect can become problematic. If she lives in a country like America, let's say, she can go into the business world and then she may have a conflict between her own ambitions professionally because what people with, let's say, the, the moon and Saturn really want out of life is respect. They think they want love, but what they really want is respect. And this is why people with that, either male or female, should think about their, I mean, their career will tend to be the focus of their life on a very important level. Now, if you're raised in a culture where women aren't supposed to focus on their careers, they're supposed to be help meets for the men and the children and keep house and all of that, then you got a, you've got a and so that aspect can be perceived as negative. So that that whole easy thumbnail definition of positive and negative is variable depending on how a person understands it and relates to it and the kind of culture that they live in and so on too. Same with any planet. I think the conjunctions depend on the two planets involved. The sun and I mean, the moon and Saturn is not necessarily a happy, easygoing conjunction. Moon conjunct Jupiter, whole other story. Moon conjunct Venus, whole other story. 
you see what it means? So yeah, a lot of it depends on the on the archetypes, the two planets involved. I guess. Exactly. And when, and in when the you're context dealing with, of the chart, yeah. When you're dealing with Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, there you're dealing with outer collective planets, and so then you've got a whole collective element to that con that conjunction that needs to be considered. Uh, the Moon conjunct Saturn, for example. Uh, will often indicate a person who is born in a kind of atmosphere or background that wants to, especially if they're a woman, the moon, that wants and, and, and likes your emotions to be guarded and controlled. So they'll be brought up to be a traditional, in this case, let's say a woman, well, a traditional woman may not fit with the rest of the chart. So maybe this is a woman who's born a Muslim but does not want to wear an abaya or a chardor or a scarf. So what does she do? You see, it can be, I mean, literally, literally it could be life-threatening in some of those situations. But if you're born in a situation here, for example, where you can get out and have your own career, then that can be a really advantageous aspect. At the same time, she's bound to have conflicts between if she's a wife and a mother that is her career has to be you can hire nannies if you can afford them but i don't care you're still a parent and you're ultimately responsible for that baby so if she's also got a high-powered career or demanding career on her own in the work-a-day world she's automatically got conflicts between her profession and work and those duties and responsibilities and the time they take versus the time and responsibilities that her husband and children take. So there's that aspect of feeling responsible that can come along with the Moon-Saturn conjunction. On the negative side, it can be a very depressing aspect. Depends a lot on the chart and, and on the person and how they're expressing it. I hope that makes sense. I don't know <laughs> that it does. Yeah, definitely. That's great. Thank you for that. Really appreciate it. Good explanation and a good wandering around on a springboard from an excellent question. If you'd like to leave a question for Robert, go to the funastrology.com website up at the top. I'm not telling you what to do, just showing you where it is. <laughs> it's up at the upper left. It's an orange box, and you can click on that and anonymously, even if you would like, leave a question for Robert. We prefer that you do it there if you can. It's kind of what our system is set up for. But if you do end up leaving it on Spotify, somehow there's a way to do it. I can't tell you what it is, but uh, there are portals there that people have crawled through, and you're welcome to do that, too. We'll try to capture it. All right. Uh, show notes for all the information around the podcast, including our Discord channel, our YouTube channel, and Robert's reading link is in there as well. And yes, he is booking. And yes, within a year, <laughs> within actually probably six or eight weeks is probably the expected wait time right now. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. We'll see you next time on the Old Soul, New Soul Astrology Podcast with Robert Glasscock. Mm -hmm.